0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 470 of So You Want To Be A Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre and your host. We're going to talk about all things to do with the world of writing, publishing and how to succeed as an author or writer. I'm now back from Melbourne. I mentioned that in the last episode that I was going then. It's great to be back in Sydney and I've been busy planning some fabulous upcoming interviews for the podcast. I cannot wait to bring these authors to you. I was also pretty excited to open the Australian newspaper on the weekend to see a wonderful review of The Torrent by Danuka McKenzie, who has done courses at the Australian Writers' Centre and who, of course, has written a brilliant novel, The Torrent, which is going so well. Now, my writing tip this week actually comes from the newsletter of Nicole Zhu, Z-H-U, also known as Nicole Donut, D-O-N-U-T, like donut. She writes short stories and essays, and her tip is about writing accountability buddies. Now, an accountability buddy is someone that you share your goals and intentions with, and The thing is, because you say it out loud, you know, via text or email or Zoom or in person, whatever, you're more motivated to actually do what it is you said that you would do. So as Nicole says, the whole point of externalizing accountability is making yourself a bit more beholden to your intentions because it's harder to disappoint others On the flip side, you also get encouragement and validation. It's a way to feel and share progress, whether that's editing a short story down by 31 words or submitting to two journals. So for Nicole and her buddy, they send each other a text message with their intentions for the week on a Sunday, and then they check in regularly to see how they're going. They occasionally swap manuscripts for feedback and editing. And because they're both checking in and supporting each other, it means that they actually make time for their writing. So it's like joining the gym with your friend. You're more likely to go (laughs) if you know you have to meet someone and it's more motivating than dragging yourself to the gym alone at 6am. Like I would never do that. We always think of writing as a very solitary process because it it is, but actually the writing community, and honestly, this is so true. The writing community is such a supportive and encouraging community. So yes, the writing part you do on your own, but you don't have to be alone, you know, find your writing buddy, your accountability partner or your mentor or your writing workshop. There are dozens of ways to stay supported and motivated within the writing community. If you're already a member of our Facebook community, so the listener community um, on Facebook, just search for So You Want To Be A Writer podcast community and request to join. It's such a great place. You'll know that writers like to help and support each other. There are communities also on Twitter and Instagram, you know, and there are hashtags like Am writing" or Am editing" or, you know, whatever. And if you need that push to write on a regular basis, we also have a course called Writing Workout, which is for creative writers who are craving the chance to develop their ideas and improve their existing storytelling skills. So the group meets Once a fortnight, and it's the perfect way to commit to your writing, to make time for your creativity, and who knows, you might meet your future accountability buddy that way. You can find out more about that at writercentre.com.au slash workout. And of course, if you want to read Nicole's original post about writing accountability buddies, her website is nicoledonut.com, and we'll put the link in the show notes as well. I also just wanted to highlight a free event that we've got coming up on Wednesday, the 23rd of February. So if you're keen mean, um, and you've listened to this podcast early, you'll uh, be able to join us. Now, our exciting new course, Presenting to Kids, is now available and it is at a special never-to-be-repeated launch price. So this is perfect whether you write or illustrate picture books or chapter books or middle grade or young adult and, you know, so on. So you'll discover how to increase your income and your book sales by being paid to present to kids. So there are endless opportunities for authors to appear at schools or library visits and festivals. And this course will show you how to whip up engaging presentations with ease. It has been created by best-selling middle-grade author Nat Amor and kid-lit veteran Kathy Tasker. If you want to find out more about the course itself, then go to writercentercomau slash presenting. That's writercentercomau slash presenting. And... Very important, if you'd like to learn more about how to make money as a children's author without writing a single word, be sure to join us at our free event on Wednesday, the 23rd of February, 2002. Nat Amor will be your guide on the night and she'll be taking you through the various ways you can build a lucrative career As a children's author, yes, without even writing a word. So head to the special events page on our website to RSVP and get all the details on how to join the free Zoom event. So check it out at writercentre.com.au and look up the special events page. I look forward to seeing you on the Zoom. Now let's move on to our giveaway this week. This book is making a splash. It is The Trivia Night by Ali Lowe. And we have three copies to give away. And you can win one of these three copies. From the outside, the parents of the kindergarten class at Darley Heights Primary School seem to have it all, living in the wealthy Sydney suburbs. It's a community where everyone knows each other and secrets don't stay secret for long. At the school's annual fundraising trivia night, the evening gets raucously out of hand and talk turns to partner swapping. Initially scandalised, it's not long before a group of parents make a reckless one-night-only pact. But in the harsh light of day, those involved must face the fallout of their behaviour. As they begin to navigate the shady aftermath of their wild night, the truth threatens to rip their perfect lives apart and revenge turns fatal. The trivia night is a gripping domestic page-turner full of shocking reveals, perfect for fans of Leanne Moriarty and Sally Hepworth. So we have three copies To give away your chance to win one of three copies, go to writercentre.com.au slash win. Entries close on the 28th of February. That's writercentre.com.au slash win. Now, everyone, are you ready for the word of the week? Well, I'm glad you've said yes, because the word of the week is etui, etui, E-T-U-I. Now, what does that mean? It is actually a small case, especially one for small objects such as needles, toothpicks, toilet articles and so on. It comes from the old French word estuire, to hold or keep safe. And it's where we get the word tweezers from, believe it or not, estuire. Basically, because you would always find a pair of tweezers in an etui. The object came to be called etwees and then tweezers, etweez, then tweezers. And, of course, after that we get the verb to tweeze. But it does make you wonder what they called tweezers before they had etwees. Anyway, there you go. That was the word of the week. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like the book that Alison Tate and I have written together called So You Want to Be a Writer, How to Get Started While You Still Have a Day Job. Full of practical tips, motivation and inspiration, it's ideal for anyone who's thinking of dipping their toes into the wonderful world of writing. We've created a blueprint for aspiring writers to follow and it's suitable regardless of whether you want to plunge straight into this new career or if you need to explore it while you're still busy in your day job. Let us hold your hand as you turn your dream into a reality. Buy your copy today at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au forward slash book. All right, now let's move on to our writer in residence this week. I absolutely loved chatting to Gary Nunn. He is an award-winning journalist. He works between the Sydney and the UK. Gary's written features, interviews, opinion pieces, lots of different types of writing for everyone from uh, the ABC to The Guardian, Vogue, Sydney Morning Herald, BBC and so on. He has written an excellent book, The Psychic Tests, a deep dive into the world of believers and sceptics and I absolutely loved reading it. Let's have a chat to Gary Nunn. Thank you so much for joining us today, Gary. Pleasure. Oh, I just loved your book. Uh, I couldn't put it down. It was such a great read. It was so interesting. For those um, readers or listeners who aren't familiar with your book, The Psychic Tests, An Adventure in the World of Believers and Skeptics, can you tell us what it's about?
1: Sure. I think it's the first book ever to talk to believers and skeptics equally. And the premise of the book is, whether you believe in them or not, psychics are likely to have an impact on who will date you, who will trust you, who will hire you and even who will fire you. And that's because um, people with lots of power and responsibility, like chief executives and world leaders, and even police murder investigators, are um, hiring psychics and taking them very seriously. Mm. So they're some of the stories that I tell in the book.
0: So why did you want to write this book? What triggered this interest in spending two years of your life researching and writing this book?
1: It was a surprise to me, actually, that I had <laughs> on this subject for my debut book, um, but two reasons. One's personal and one's professional. The personal reason is my, my sister, my younger sister, Taryn. Um, so Taryn has always been obsessed with psychics and I used to, Um, really poke fun at her about this because my sister in the book is the voice of the believer and I in the book and the voice of the sceptic and um, at least that's where we start in the book and in the journey of the book we step into each other's worlds a little bit Um, but before that before I started writing the book my sister had dragged me along to see these psychics and um, I'd never taken them very seriously always thought it was just a bit of entertainment and a bit of sibling kind of um, bonding and banter and that grew a lot darker in 2015 when our dad died suddenly and then my sister sought out the services of 10 different mediums to obsessively try and bring my dad back into the room and when she was doing that I grew concerned that um, her her vulnerability and her grief were being exploited and that she was being suspended in the um, bargaining or denial phase of grief. So that was the personal. The professional was when, as a journalist for the Sydney Morning Herald, I reported on a story which staggered me. It was the executive chairman of Australia's biggest stockbroking firm called BBY, and um, his name is Glenn Rosewall. And Glenn had hired a psychic called Naveen Ottinger and, and paid her for four years. Um, to advise him on where to invest the company's stocks and shares, so millions of dollars, um, and also who to hire and even who to fire. So the spirits would advise Naveen on who wasn't going to perform well in the next month, and Glenn would find a way of firing them. He ran the stockbroking firm this way for four years, and after which time it went bust, $61 million owed to clients. (coughs) There was a liquidated report, and the psychic Naveen was brought in as a witness and suddenly I had this new hunch because previously my sister had made me believe that the people that sought out psychics um, to help them make decisions about their lives were perhaps gullible or fragile and and naive um, and vulnerable when I when I reported on that story about Glenn, um, it made me wonder it, whether he was an outlier or whether there were people like him um, who were very powerful, responsible for millions of dollars and dozens of staff um, and authoritative who sought out psychic's advice and, and um, took them very seriously. So mm. that's where the, that's, that was the impetus for writing the book and where I started.
0: And it's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? I mean, and also fun fact for listeners, which you include in the book, Glenn Rosewald, the CEO, is actually the son of tennis great Ken Rosewald. And <clears throat> in your research, you found that some major names, apart from you know, presidents of the United States and um, <clears throat> and associated family members, but also famously Christine Holgate, yeah. who the former CEO of Blackmore's who um, subsequently went on to uh, head Australia Post and then was embroiled in the Cartier watch scandal. You tell this great story. you have to read the book everyone. you have to, you tell this great story of her involvement in um, fortune tellers um, which, which she t- speaks about publicly she has spoken about publicly. So here's the thing though you this sparked your interest, but there's a difference between, you know your interest being sparked and then deciding to write a whole book. So what was the because you can you know go down an internet rabbit hole and 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 research this kind of stuff. What made you decide there's a book in this?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, the gravity of that decision that Glenn took because when that stockbroking firm went bust, it was the biggest stockbroking firm collapse since the global financial crisis. So that's no small that's no small thing. So mm you know, they've bought down this stockbroking firm and I think because as a journalist, you 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 go into um, every every feature and, and piece that you write, knowing that the purpose of journalism sometimes is to hold pa- hold power to account. And um especially weed out places where um power is um under investigated and um could be um used in nefarious ways or leading to corruption and those kind of things. So I, 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 it suddenly occurred to me, and I started to do a bit of research and realised that there are were, there were US presidents like Ronald Reagan and um, there are chief execs like Christine Holgate, as you mentioned, who, by the way, attributes her psychic um, interactions with the success that she's had in her career. So the complete polar opposite story to, um, to Glenn. Um, and, and it started to, and, and I started to think about faith and connection and power. I started to think about people of faith and about the, um, to a to a secular person, the supernatural miracles which they believe in and how we treat them very differently and we give them a lot more respect than the believers of psychics who, to, to the mind of a secular person, believe in um, equally supernatural miracles which seem unfeasible and uh, unproven by science and yet with one cohort we uh, in Britain, half the book set in Britain, so for a long time in britain we we gave people a face seats in the House of Lords um, in Australia. we give them tax breaks to run huge influential organizations and a say over public policy. whereas with psychics and their believers, we do what I did with my sister, we deride them and we mock them, and we don't take them very seriously so i th- I think the journalist only really wanted to um, explore um in a really rigorous way this form of power that they have that is wholly under investigated and wholly unchecked and unregulated as well and to to find out whether that power was being used for good or ill and also I think I wanted to really wanted to write a book that that no one on a subject that no one was talking about you know because Mm. there are so many you know, as a as a um, as a gay writer, like, I feel like there's so many great coming out memoir type stories, and, and and those stories are always really engaging and really really important. There's loads of books about the really huge subjects of our time, like climate change. What I wanted to do was to come in and write a book from a fresh perspective, and um, that talked to believers and skeptics equally, which was really difficult, by the way. Yes, well. <laughs> to, to kind of like play into the wider themes of the post-truth world that we're living in the the dangers of conspiracy and misinformation which became like even more pertinent because COVID happened you know I started writing the book before COVID and it happened during during the writing of the book and the book kind of evolved with COVID and, and that becomes part of the story later and it's just a fascinating subject there's not one person that I have spoken to who hasn't lent into this story because I think some skeptics go oh god that's all a load of bullshit and I don't believe in any of it Uh, which was the original title of my book by the way Um, the working title was bullshit question mark Oh. (laughs) and my publisher said we didn't want to alienate believers too much Um, (laughs) but yeah I I think that some skeptics initially go I don't want to read about that and then you tell them about very very powerful people who have an impact over their lives their managers their prime ministers mm. the police force that their taxes are paying money towards and you go they have a big uh, sway within those realms and then suddenly they lean in and they are fascinated
0: I think that um, you've done an incredible job treading that line between you know believer and skeptic and it is written, you know, you, even though you say that you're a sceptic, the way it is written is very objective. Now, when you start writing a book about this space, you know, it's called The Psychic Test and it's um, the world, the psychic realm is extremely broad. How, how did you think, did you think at the start how you are going to structure it or what you were going to research or did you kind of just start and see what happened?
1: Good question. I did have to set the parameters because it's this world is huge and mm. I, I was very aware that, you know, it, there's a very, there were, I think at one point in the book I say this is all very Western, you know, when you, when you, and I, and I was very aware that I was mainly focused on England and Australia and a bit of America and America, America is a whole different ball game too because belief <laughs> the there is such a big part of their society. You know, you, if you were running as a, a president, and um, you claim that you were an atheist. Atheist in America, you probably wouldn't get voted in, and that's sort of accepted yeah. there. So that sort of uh, that that level of faith and belief um, transports over to psychic belief in America. So it was almost like that's its own book. So because I'm British and I've lived in Australia for ten years, and at the time when I st- started writing the book, um, I was living in London. I kind of split my time between London and Sydney outside of COVID. So it made sense just to focus on those two countries. So that was the first parameter. Then it was, then it was kind of like, where do I set? Um, where is neutral ground? Like, um, because to a, to a skeptic, neutral ground is skepticism, um, but to a believer, it's an open mind. So that's when my publisher and I came up with the idea of having my sister throughout the book. So she pulls my head in when my kind of skeptical, curious, questioning. Sardonic, cynical side rises up and says well to a believer this is how we would approach that so she keeps she pulls my head in that way and then when it comes down to just the psychic world as you say which is huge and um, I went down to the mind body spirit festival in both Sydney and London and and just discovered just how vast and um, and, and that was when I really knew that there was a book in this because for any storyteller the amount of um, idiosyncratic and eccentric <laughs> and quirky people but also the the highly, highly emotional and vulnerable and uh, emotionally charged interactions that that world encompasses. I wanted to write a a story that just focused on the humanity within that world. And uh, that's why it's called The Psychic Tests. Each chapter is a different test because we've just fixated on this one test. Is it true? Can people speak to the dead or see into the future? And, and, And in effect, do supernatural miracles occur? which is, you know, we knew that we'd know whether a God existed or not. And I thought that question has been obsessed over for millennia, you know, from Richard Dawkins and the God delusion to um, (coughs) to the believer side. And I think that's the least interesting question. And the more interesting question to me was like, within this world, um, when people are interacting with it, um, can psychics help with depression, loneliness, vulnerability, grief? imposter syndrome, confidence, all those things. So I wanted to, to write a John Ronson-esque um, journey through that world. And I and I did, um, you're right, the world is so big that I did have to set some parameters. So I focused mainly on mediums, psychics, and astrologers. So a medium can speak to the dead, a psychic purports to be able to see into the future. Astrology is slightly different um uh but i because of the way that people really do live their lives quite seriously by what their star signs may or may not say as i as i show in the book with some fascinating examples like the one i was just talking about was um with my friend who's just started my book was the uh the mother who um is actually a friend of mine um, she had a caesarean because she didn't want her son to be the same star sign as his dad so she had a caesarean because she'd have him earlier and those kind of massive decisions that um, I always thought that people just thought of star signs like I did as a bit of fun but I, I started to realise that people take them very very seriously so um, they were the three main ones that I focused on and I guess um, the things that I didn't focus on were you, you could go into numerology and Reiki and um all of those other kind of offshoots of psychics um but i I chose to just focus on the three main areas where I saw power and um but yeah, I think there's another book in all of the other areas because there are some people that i mean one of the areas that um I did kind of zoom into, which I probably wouldn't have done otherwise, were um people that call themselves medical intuitives, and that happened when when COVID arrived and I went to the Mind Body Spirit Festival in Sydney and there was a woman that ran a packed seminar there who stood up in front of all of these people and said, I can create the perfect DNA for you that will protect you from coronavirus. And I just thought, Oh my God, these and these people believed her. So I was I was thinking maybe these people will leave that room thinking at that point we didn't have the vaccine, but maybe they would think they, they wouldn't need to wash their hands or, or uh, wear masks or, or all of the other um, precautions that we take because they genuinely believe that this woman, all you had to do was pay $900 by the way on her retreat. So, you know, that was, that was something that made me think, God, th- there is real potential for harm in this world and it's underreported. And I wanted to, as much as I wanted to uh, not, laugh anymore and be dismissive of believers i also wanted to show the potential for harm in this world and uh, and not to be too blinkered by that
0: mm. and i just also want to um mention to listeners that you you do do that you do show that that can occur but you also tell many stories where the psychics are spot on so it's it's a really really good balance Now, you did a series of tests. It's called the psychic tests. So you did a series of tests, and in the chapters they're called things like the business test, the politics test, the grief test, the charlatan test, and so on. Did you decide at the start the kinds of tests you wanted to do and then research it that way, or did you just plunge headfirst, get as much experience as you can, and then group them, cluster them into the tests?
1: Definitely the latter. I plan. <laughs> and in fact, it wasn't structured that way. This is the joy of working with a publisher who's really smart, my publisher, Pantera. Um, I worked with some super smart people there who, um, ironically, were very intuitive. But I, I think of that as But they were very intuitive. They almost knew what I was trying to articulate before I could f- fully form and articulate an idea myself and and that's the real joy of writing a book because it can be a real solitary experience until you um, have got the first draft down so yeah I absolutely plunged in it wasn't even called that uh, it was called the psychic test with uh, singular and then my publisher came up with the idea of like way well, for each chapter was a different test and you've got all of the it, it but it was just so clear to them that there were all these different tests and then like it was just this amazing epiphany that they had. And I would ne- I don't think I would have come up with that on my own. So it was it really is uh, like teamwork um writing a book. And I really loved that that level of once you'd sort of splurged out the first draft, um that restructuring process, I mean it's so difficult and so time consuming and it was painful. But it was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. And and I and when they suggested that as the new title, suddenly everything started to fall mm-hmm. into place. Um, and uh, and even all my key messages around that. And it was kind of what I've been trying to say anyway. But it was a much more tidy way of saying it.
0: So you, because you. Yeah. Not only spoke to heaps of people, just like in normal conversation, just to get their experiences with psychics, if any, you know, just like your mates or people that you meet in pubs and stuff like that, but you also did heavy duty research. You experienced things for yourself. You did a lot of actual research. How did you physically collate? all of these things like, you know, random conversations versus um, heavy-duty research, was it our Word document? Like what was it on a practical level?
1: From the gonzo research I did, which is when I actually physically went along to see um, dozens of palm readers, tarot readers, psychics, mediums, medical intuitives, <laughs> um, etc. cetera, um, part of that is the the Maya Angelou quote that you never forget how people make you feel you just Mm -hmm. don't forget that you just don't forget how you felt in that moment and for me when I stopped going along like I did with my sister as this kind of hard-headed skeptic and ready to be dismissive and to mock it all um I started to really I just what I did was I suspended my disbelief and I indulged the small cognitive dissonance that lives with inside me and inside many of us that's that kind of like, what if, you know, and I think I say in the book, you know, I, I used to be an atheist, and I've moved to agnostic, not that anyone really cares, but for me, that was a significant shift, because I don't, I don't think God exists, and I don't personally believe God exists, but I don't know he doesn't, um, and, um, and so that, that really shaped the way that I approach this world and my research, because we've, the same is true of psychics, I don't, I don't, believe that that they are seeing into the future or speaking to the dead but I don't know that they're not so um so I would go along and um, obviously would would just record I'd I'd ask for permission to record those on my phone and they all say yes to that but then you you find yourself like I was in London in the middle of Leicester Square and it was frenetic and there was noise everywhere people everywhere sirens um horns hooting on the road and then I was I went to see this tarot reader called Merlin Trotter And uh, that's just an unforgettable experience because he's on this rudimentary picnic table that he's set up. And he's telling you and he is telling you about your future um, in the middle of one of the busiest squares in the world. And he in that moment, because I've chosen to suspend my disbelief, you know, he he is nourishing my ego, um, listening to my anxieties, hearing my dreams and and. Report repeating them back to me in a way that, you know, you, you you transpose your own narrative onto what he's saying. So those kind of things as research were just so memorable, and the, the experience is just so seductive that um, that it's it's you can you can hear it now. It's as fresh in my head as it was the day that I went to to do it in 2019. With the with the rest of the research, especially with the people, what what happened was when people, friends and friends of friends discovered that I was writing on this subject, usually they'd say Gary um, I lost my younger sister when I was 15 years old, I've never told you because it's really painful and this would be you know a friend of a friend, so not not, not a particularly close friend, someone who I'd maybe met four or five times um, and I went to see this medium and the medium said these things and it really helped me process my grief and my feelings about it and suddenly the connection that I had with that person that I would only met maybe four times was so profound and poignant after that moment that um i it was such a privilege to be trusted with um, that very emotional story that um yes, I would go away and make notes and of course um I would ask for permission to use their story in the book and you know um, most of them said yes um and and a lot of them had pseudonyms um <coughs> But it gave me it it meant I listened to their story and I heard it in a different way than previously, because previously I just I would warn my identity as a skeptic so strongly that I sometimes close down those conversations and gone. well, I don't believe in any of that. It's all ridiculous. It's all pseudoscience. And when you stop doing that, because me saying that to that person isn't going to change their belief. It's real for them. So when I started to do that, I just started to observe and listen in a different way. And I think that mm. research just sits here in your, in your cranium as well. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I did have to keep track of, like, who said what. Who did, And also the predictions. So, like, when, so, when a psychic made all these predictions, I'd have to listen back to them quite a few times to, to sort of if I'm really going to, like, be fair and test them rigorously. Did any of those predictions come true? So I remember sitting with my sister quite a lot, and but the interesting thing happens then because my sister will go, "Well, that came true, that was true," and it's and it's so vague and ambiguous mm. that mm. I'm like, mm, you know, <laughs> you're, "You're writing in some things there that that um, that I think uh, you want it to be true, you know." So yes, an interesting psychological human things happen when you when you go back over your research in that way.
0: So, did you? Um... Do all the research or you know a huge amount of research to a point and then start writing or were you writing as you were researching?
1: I was writing as I was researching because mm. sometimes yeah because sometimes um something would happen and I would need to capture it there and then like I went to um, I went to a séance where they tried to bring in the spirit of Margaret Thatcher to tell britain what to do about brexit and um and in some of those instances like for that for example i did a story for vice and um and that happened before the book and so because i had done that story for the sydney morning herald about um the uh the stockbroking firm executive chairman and then i had done a story for vice about um the margaret thatcher seance (laughs) um uh, but other times when i hadn't already done some journalism that led up to the book um yeah, it would be it would be kind of like capturing the moment and writing a para, even though it wasn't sat within a structure of a chapter or anything like that. It would just be like I need to I need to get these details down. I need to not forget those details. You know, it would be the details that rather than how it made me personally feel, it would be something bonkers that someone would have said that had really struck me, and that I needed to capture it in that moment. So, um, and then and then it was a case of just slotting it slotting it in like a, like a jigsaw. Um, but also because half the book's set in Britain and ha- in London and half the book set in um, Sydney, um, I, I also needed to just sort of like make sure I, I caught, captured those moments as I went along as well.
0: So one of the <clears throat> biggest mistakes that many journalists who, who write a book uh, because of this nature make, and, and in fact many people make, um, is that a book is, you know, 80,000 words or it's it's a lot of words, um, whereas a feature article could be 800 to 2,000 2, words on average. And journalists are often so used to writing short things and they think, and again, let me just emphasize, I shouldn't just say journalists. Many people think they, they just can write a series of articles that they can then slap together and voila, there is a book. But they soon realise that that doesn't work in the vast majority of cases because there's no narrative thread running through. And you, one of the fantastic things um, about the way you've written this is that you get to the end of a chapter and you plant the seed that makes me want to turn that page. And not only that, there is a narrative thread. Did, were you very clear on that at the start? Or did you also fall into that trap, maybe thinking you could write a series of articles and slap them together?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I wasn't clear on that from the start at all. That was, this is my first book. So it was almost like learning, it was, it was learning a completely new skill. I guess one of the things that did help me is that I, as a journalist, am a long form features writer. So I regularly write pieces for the Australian Women's Weekly that are two, 3,000 words long. Um, So they're they're a bit longer than, like, an online um, word piece, for example. So um, And they're the pieces that I love writing the most. I always really like giving stories the oxygen to breathe that they deserve. But even with pieces like that, you you are, as any writer, journalist would know, especially a features writer, you have to be stark. Like, absolutely. It's a George Orwell. Like, if you can remove a word, it has to go because all Mm -hmm. of my features are double the length that they should be. (laughs) And then I'm like, damn now I need to like just get down to the very the, the very stark bare bones of the story without losing any of the emotional connection or engagement or anything like that it's it's, it's a it is a skill that you hone and you become so brutally concise um that you're right when you write a book you have to unlearn you have to unlearn all of that and relearn a new way of writing. My publisher really helped me my, my agent said something that um was interesting he said journalists often write really bad books and I thought <laughs> me <laughs> <laughs> for the exact reasons that you've just described that you can end up being quite brutally succinct and stark and just focused on the facts um and they're important of course but so is story but I just think storytelling is hardwired within me and that's why I was drawn to this world as well because mm. when someone tells you about the experience they had with a psychic or a medium the parts that I zone in on is wow you lost a sister when you were 15 that must have been That must have had a huge impact on your life. And they're more interested in, in like, but how would this, how would she have known that? How would this medium have known that? And I've zoned in on the humanity and the human stories. And I think that's the features writer within me. I don't think I did see it as a series of articles, I I did see it as a stream of consciousness that unwound itself at its own pace. My initial first draft was 159 (gasps) that's too long uh, as you say a book is 80, 000, i think mine's about seventy-seven thousand words long now so i think my my publisher gulped quite robustly when they saw that but they were, they were kind of like in helping me restructure and, and condense and you, the the edi- editing process is when your book comes to life and it becomes something perhaps even a bit more different than what you first um, imagined it would be just slightly and um that was although that was difficult for me it was a bit like anything difficult, it's where I grew the most as a writer and as a professional and, and where, I, where I really learned how to be a proper storyteller with, as you mentioned, a narrative thread that goes all the way through. I think the restructuring of it being the psychic tests with different tests in each chapter really, really helped, as I mentioned. Putting my sister in as the voice of the believer really helped. None of that was in the first draft. Um, but the- oh,
0: really? Your sister wasn't in the first draft?
1: She was in the first chapter of the first draft. right publisher was like why don't you put her in almost every chapter so so the believer has a voice you know when the reader yeah always comes back to the reader and if the reader is the believer or even has some kind of cognitive dissonance that means that they might sneakily normally they keep it secret believers everyone says they're a skeptic they're not um and um so yeah that that worked really really And, and it was just something i'd never considered so that's when the narrative thread started to become more apparent to me and then i would and then I'd be able to sort of write more around that and um there were certain scenes like for example the scene when Naveen Rottinger comes into the court in chapter two or three um and uh gives evidence um about the uh about her role in the stockbroking firm that went fast um like I remember my publisher saying then why don't you you know that that was two lines and um my publisher said take five pages and set the scene in the court as if it's a court drama you've watched those and you and then that was just brilliant because I was like, mm. fantastic. and then i could really it gave the oxygen to breathe of like me, me be able to sort of flex the muscle of my of my lexicon in a way that you can't always do in journalism and um so i really really enjoyed that process but it did have to be coaxed out of me and, and i think that was part of that unlearning process
0: what a great editor um no so the other thing is that while your sister is a thread throughout the book you are the other thread throughout the book it's not a memoir but you talk about very very personal experiences and and your beliefs and your you know um things that have that you've gone through that are difficult um and they are an integral part of a of this book, even though this book is, you know, about psychics, right, it's also about you. Was it hard to, especially as, you know, somebody who's usually an objective journalist, was it hard to lay your
1: soul on the line a bit? Yeah, it was. um, I mean, it's not hard to write those pieces because that comes naturally. It's just hard to know that the world's going to read that
0: well yes (laughs) that's what i mean (laughs) yeah
1: Yeah, so yes it was yeah it was I, i was able to go there and i think not least because the psychics had drawn out of me some of the most intimate and vulnerable parts of my life when you go and see a psychic you're talking about very personal things and and you know your future and your your romantic and professional future and mm. um, perhaps griefs that have happened to you that you've perhaps not even properly dealt with so like it almost becomes a form of counseling and um and and that's a raw area in itself so um they draw out of you things that you and, and, and bring up to the surface things that you may have buried so that was so it was there i was i was able to go there and I knew that I knew also from reading a lot of um, narrative nonfiction in preparation for writing this book, I knew that 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 was mm. in fashion, I guess, and, um, and what readers enjoy. And, and, and also when I've s- sort of read some of the reviews on Goodreads, it's really interesting because they're the bits that people have gone. I wanted more of that. And I'm like, more? Like I've already <laughs> the whole. Yeah, what more do you want? I don't know, how how much more? How much more? Yeah, you know. Um, so that was really really interesting to me because they were the bits that were were a bit uncomfortable. And 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 to be honest with you, after writing them, although I got permissions and although I got consent, of course I did. I still feel like there's a cost. There's a cost to doing that. And um and the cost is worth it, but it is a cost. And I think any writer. Um, That's in this genre of narrative nonfiction needs to I I think I was probably unprepared for that cost This was my first book suddenly my sister's name is all over the media Our dad's death all over the media and we knew what we were signing up for I knew I was writing it She um, obviously signed off every word Mm -hmm. But that is um, letting the world into the intimate private life of my family and Mm. um that that is a cost and I am very protective over them and I and I think that that was sometimes difficult and in the in the rollout I don't think we there was a lot of media on this book and suddenly our faces were everywhere and, and we're talking about the most um fragile moments of our entire lives um maybe I wasn't quite no one can really prepare you for that. So and, and and it occurred to me that that is exactly what I ask of my features, human interest features subjects to do, to share the most intimate part of their lives. So it, you know, I've always been very protective over my sources as a journalist, but I think it made me even more aware of like the importance of um, mm. Follow up and empathy and checking in on mental health with people. Mm. So yeah, it was it was difficult, but it's really interesting to see that because the bits that I enjoyed writing the most in the book were about Harry Houdini and Adolf Hitler's Jewish astrologer (laughs) and you know these 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 just like I would spend days buried in research, and they were the bits that I absolutely loved writing the most, not the bits about my life because and then you also just kind of think I'm I'm unimportant like I. I want to talk about other people's stories, not so much my own. But I realise that if I do a second book, it's what people want. So Mm. I I just need to really think long and hard and probably be a bit more prepared with me and myself and whoever that story affects and impacts in their lives if that's something that I'm willing to do again. So let's talk about
0: your second book. Now that you've got the taste for it, no doubt you're obviously continuing with your journalism, but uh, is there a second book in your brain?
1: Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, tell us. Well, I can't you. What you can. The reason I can't really tell you is <laughs> because <laughs> there's three um, narrative nonfiction subjects which I'm interested in. So I did a couple of courses for the Australian Writer Centre, which, by the way, were, were fantastic and really helped me grow my confidence as a writer. So thank you for those. Um, and um, I, ironically enough, they were in fiction, which I haven't gone on to write and publish. But um although it's so different from narrative nonfiction, the storytelling element and the, the skills that I learned there were still really invaluable for when I was putting together this book. And I did from from those from those courses go away and write a fiction book. And then I I wrote it. I um I, I won a place on a writer's residency and I and I finished it and then I put it in a drawer and I, I gave it to my first readers and I got that far and I just I didn't at that point have an agent or anything like that. I then decided to go into narrative non-fiction because i've been reading a lot of it and really loving it and i just thought that's closer to journalism fiction is a, a whole different ball game and trying to make characters speak in dialogue that's actually believable and not stereotypical was was i was finding was really, really difficult so i so the, that fiction book is sat in my drawer and i uh, one day made be brave enough to then go back into it but I, I do want my second book to be narrative non-fiction again I have three subjects that I think would be really interesting that may allow me to bring in my bring in a personal story um and uh, and also do what, the same of what I've done with this one is to go from the micro to the macro um but I don't they're half bait so I can't
0: <laughs> okay
1: I need to I need to sort of like sit down with my friend over a bottle of red wine you know who's also a writer, and just like hit them up, and then once I've done that, I'll come back to you and tell you which one I think. And then I, I just-
0: can't wait to hear. I can't wait to hear. Um, all right. So, what was the um, most rewarding thing about writing this book, and what was the hardest
1: thing? The most rewarding thing it brought me a lot closer to my sister. Mm. We had we're so different. I'm a skeptic. She's a believer. I'm a real storyteller and a talker she's more uh, of a of a listener um we've always been very different growing up and um and then just through through um writing the book and, and getting inside her head and, and seeing her perspective as a believer and um <laughs> excuse me stop laughing at her so much and taking her more seriously and meeting her where she's at um i think improved our bond and made us closer than we've ever been like we talk on the phone now she's in the uk we never used to talk on the phone um and um it 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 brought me a lot closer both to her and also um you know and she stepped into my world a bit so she having gone to obsessively see these 10 mediums to bring our deceased dad back into the room she then listened to me and hired a grief counselor and accredited grief counsellor who's Mm. trained a lot of these mediums who I think were some of whom were charlatans Mm. and um, she's never seen a medium since so I think I stepped into her world and she also stepped into mine and we just started to hear each other more than we probably ever had done as brother and sister so that was really rewarding in addition to those people that I told you who would come and share usually it was grief usually it was about a bereavement that they've suffered that they don't we just don't talk about those things much it's a taboo that we create in society and it and the knowing that i was writing a book about mediums and psychics gave them permission to come to me and to discuss that and that was a real privilege to to bear witness to their stories and their heartbreak and their their journey through grief through those five stages of grief and through uh, there's, there's a sixth stage was recently added by the people who wrote the five-state of brief which is called Finding Meaning and that is exactly what this book is about. This That is the crux of all of this. Whether anything paranormal exists or not is is unimportant, it's finding meaning and that's something that we really, really need to do as humans even when something that happens feels completely meaningless, like someone dying before their time uh, is often one of the most meaningless things that can happen and when people say everything happens for a reason you you come back to that and you think what is that reason and mm. what I've learned is through these people who obsessively go and see mediums is that you need to sometimes find one and create one even though it, it feels a bit perfunctory so that was really rewarding and, and, and I think I grew and, and and matured a bit as a um, storyteller through that through their stories and bearing witness to their stories in a way that was more empathetic than I had been as a um as a hardened skeptic the most challenging It's uh, writing a book is challenging because um, the industry it was going through. The industry is hard enough as it is, and then we. Ha- I, I was in lockdown for half of um, the writing of the book, and I I wrote most of the book from the State Library of New South Wales, which is like my home from home and where I really just focused. And then when that got taken away from me, it was really hard to sit in my bedroom where I sleep every day and I don't have enough money for a house big enough for an office. So I would roll out of bed and two metres from my bed is my desk and um, and there was no separation. And, and, and so doing that in lockdown was a real challenge. And then the library reopened and then I just was on a roll. And then when we were releasing the book, there was a huge media uptake and interest, but we were in lockdown. So one of the really hard things that happened was like we had this really big win when Big W bought um, thousands of the books. um, And uh, apparently that's apparently that's uh, relatively rare for a first time author like me. So that was a huge win. And then we went back into the really long, strict lockdown in Sydney. Um, and then there was hardly any big W's open in the country, like in mm. the biggest cities in Australia, every big W and every dimix was closed. So by the time five months later, when we um, when we reopened, I, my book stood no chance, really. It was just buried and um, didn't really get the placement on the shelves that it, it it um, could have done if we weren't in lockdown and that really impacted sales um I didn't get to you know my publisher had planned in um launch events for me in Melbourne Brisbane and Sydney they all went um you know venues booked in everything so that all went over mm-hmm. Zoom so I guess like writing your first book is a really special moment that you don't get back and I think this is partly why I want to do a second book because <laughs> I still haven't even been able to get together with my friends and just have a drink and um celebrate the fact that I spent two years doing that. So um I think as a debut author all that stuff was a challenge. But I met the cha- I'm you know I met those challenges and I got the book out and there was some great media on it and um and it's and it's a real joy to do podcasts like this with you and to talk about it. So I'm really grateful for all those things
0: well it's a fantastic book um finally what's your top three tips for aspiring writers who want to write their own you know creative nonfiction book one day
1: uh do a course at the Australian Writers Centre um you haven't told me to say that but do because it, because I had a form of imposter syndrome before I went there like I'd even now I feel uncomfortable saying I'm an author it just sounds pretentious to me I don't know if that's because of my background and my accent I don't know but like you know I, I the imposter syndrome saying I'm a I am a published writer now like I, it feels I feel uncomfortable and it makes me sweat um but uh but doing those courses gave me the confidence to believe that one day I would be you know and and that I would have the the dogged determination to get there so those courses will also get you in touch with your creative side because you're be alongside peers who are also creative and it gives you permission to think and talk creatively which we don't always do in our lives so that's number one number two get an agent so before you go to a publisher it's it's probably a bit easier to get an agent and um, so I n- didn't know that about the industry um, and um, I actually found out through one of your courses that was that was a good way a good route it's not the only route but um, I always thought you just pitch to publishing houses. You don't. You pitch yourself to an agent first, um, and, uh, and and then once an agent takes you on, they take that they take you on that journey with them. And number three, like I would say, one of the things I've learned is that your first draft is just telling the story to yourself, and you can get caught up in it being perfect. So don't let perfect be don't let being good and being perfect be the enemy of actually getting it done. Um, because creation happens in the redraft and the and the edit and um and but your first act of creation is your first draft so you don't even need an agent to do your first draft you don't mm. you don't need to have done a course to do your first draft just just start writing and and stop getting in the way of yourself and um get out of the way of your own brain and and try and get into flow a little bit find a place like my place is the, is the library in new south wales it's beautiful once you get somewhere like that, and you, and you get into flow, um, even if you're not going to use your first three chapters at all, usually you know, your, your chapter four became, ends up becoming your chapter one, and you you discard those first three chapters. You would have always had to have written those three chapters to get to that perfect start of your of your story. So um, it's that process of unlearning all of the things that we do in emails and in journalist articles and in life, which is to be. To the point and brief and and concise and it's allowing yourself to flow in a stream of consciousness way um that will that will nourish your creative side and and you you'll probably surprise yourself about the things that come out when you give yourself the space and the time to do that so find find the space and find the time and um let yourself know that you deserve it
0: What great advice. Thank you so much, Gary. Uh, So Gary's book, The Psychic Test, An Adventure in the World of Believers and Skeptics. I could not put the book down. It's just so well written, so well researched, so interesting and utterly fascinating. So thank you so much for your time today, Gary, and congratulations on the book.
1: Absolute pleasure.
0: This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Creative Nonfiction, is your essential guide to crafting a true story into a compelling, page-turning book. Creative nonfiction is one of the most popular genres in publishing right now, and it's clear to see why people love a good story, and if it's based on true events, they're even more invested in it. Perhaps you want to explore true crime, history, or literary journalism. Maybe you have a great idea for a memoir or armchair travel book. It doesn't matter what subject you're passionate about, this course provides you with a blueprint on everything you need to know, from how to structure your story and bring its real characters to life, to the kind of research you need to do and the techniques that will drive your narrative to a powerful climax. With over 10 hours of lessons and plenty of practical exercises to complete, you'll discover how to weave your true story into a truly great read. This powerful course removes the guesswork and breaks down the process step-by-step step so you can approach your writing project with confidence. And because it's one of our online self-paced courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months' access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creativenonfiction. That's au slash creative nonfiction. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Gary Nunn. So we've come to the end of this week's episode. And um, what are your takeaways this week? Well, I hope you got a lot out of that chat with Gary and if you're crafting your own nonfiction narrative, uh, but also some really tangible takeaways that you can do are, or actions that you can do are, to join us at our free event on how to make money as a children's author without writing a single word. Remember, just go to writercenter.com.au and uh, register at the special events page. You can also win one of the three copies of the trivia night, so make sure you do that. Check that out. And, of course, think about getting an accountability buddy. Who would be a good person in your world um, who could be your accountability buddy? And if you can't think of someone straight away, maybe start becoming a bit more active in a writing community where you can meet other people, other like-minded writers and find an accountability buddy there. That brings us to the end of the episode. So feel free to connect with me on social media. You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. But you'll also find all of the show notes at SoYouWantToBeAWriter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I look forward to chatting to you again next time.